Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 16th, 2022, uh, Tuesday middle of august and we're trying to figure out the narratives the meta narratives i guess of the year and perhaps it's possible that the covid story please good touch wood is coming to an end um the headlines today is that the first lady jill biden tested positive but it's barely news had this happened a year or two ago we would be dominated with it more and more stories of uh, vaccine stuff. We found an old vaccine for a new disease, an old vaccine that might help with COVID. Meanwhile, most of us seem to be, for better or worse, moving on quite literally. The Marriott CEO, one of the biggest travel groups in the world, says that travelers are a bit numb, meaning we're not really trying to... I don't know what he means by numb. Maybe we just don't want to deal with it anymore. We've had enough. Uh, certainly a Philadelphia Inquirer headline about COVID, what COVID, suggests that more and more people say they're returning to normal. It's a good question, of course, what exactly normal is, either before, during or after COVID. Um, but the story or the stories of COVID are deeply embedded in us, whether or not the meta story is coming to an end. Perhaps our leading storyteller or at least narrator of the COVID story is my guest today. Eli Saslow is a Pulitzer Prize winning um, journalist, one of the best uh, young journalists in America. His book Voices from the Pandemic came out last year, different cover, uh, and it's just out today in paperback. And I'm thrilled that Eli is joining us from his home in uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, Eli, you like listening to stories, don't you? But it must have been hard during COVID to listen to so many different stories. Um, what impact did it have on you personally as the, as the man who really became the, the aggregator of American stories about COVID? Yeah, I mean, I, I do, I think, naturally always gravitate towards stories and, and like to especially hear other people tell their stories. Um, and honestly, you know, as a journalist, usually I'm doing that traveling around the country, spending tons of time with people in person, uh, almost embedding into their lives to not only talk to them, but to see the things that they're dealing with. This, you know, with COVID, particularly during the first months of the pandemic, I really couldn't do that. You know, the, the Washington Post, the organization that I work for, didn't want us to travel. I, I knew that at that point, you know, if I got onto a plane and I arrived in somebody else's life, I'd be potentially putting them at risk. So, the truth is, for the first few months, um, I was a little bit at a loss for what to do. You know, I, I'm, I'm used to hearing about other people's lives, and I, I needed to find a new way to do that. So what I started to do was sort of research people whose lives had been upended by the pandemic in, in various ways, whether they were sick, whether they were caring for people who were sick, uh, working in overwhelmed hospitals, or even just you know, running family restaurants that after five generations were going out of business because the economy was collapsing. And I started reaching out to those people and having a long series of phone calls, uh, hearing about their lives, you know, week after week, um, and then compiling those stories together into this book. We're always looking, of course, for good news, good stories out of tragedy. Do you think one of the 
One of the upside of the COVID years was that Americans learned to tell stories again, that it's, that it's a I, skill that perhaps gets lost in our age of television and the internet. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think also it was, um, you know, a, a remarkably uh, shared experience, right? All of us were sort of siloed into our own homes, into our own lives. Uh, for a while there, we, we really were not able to go and interact in the world in the ways that we normally would. Um, you know, this was kind of all of our story. Everybody was affected by this pandemic. That's that's different than almost anything else that I write about. This was a really shared, you know, not just American experience, but global experience. Uh, un unfortunately, I think the stories all of us decided to tell about that um, were very different, right? And so, so what we saw, rather than sort of maybe a, a unification um, through that experience, was a lot more divisiveness. Uh, certain groups of people who believed that you needed to wear three masks in order to go outside your home. Other groups of people who believed that if you wore a mask, you were crazy. You know, all, all this kind of tension that we saw unfold that I think still informs a lot of where we are politically and in other ways right now. I want to get to some of the stories in the book, but for you, aggregating these stories must have been challenging and not because there was a lack of stories, but perhaps because there were too many. Did you have to edit out a lot? Do you feel almost bad that some people's voices for one reason or other don't appear in your voices from the pandemic? Yes, I, I definitely had to edit out a lot. Um, you know, and, and sort of what I would do is for every one of these pieces, you know, for instance, uh, one of the pieces is about an anesthesiologist who is uh, intubating, you know, dozens of patients a night at, at, a, at a hospital in Chicago during the height of the pandemic. Um, and I knew I wanted to sort of capture that experience and write about that experience. But in the process of figuring out how I wanted to do that, I talked to a dozen anesthesiologists and learned learned about what that job is like and what it was like in different parts of the country. And through those dozen conversations, kind of found myself gravitating to, to one, to Corey in Chicago um, and realizing that what he was saying, the fact that he was pretty new to the job, the fact that he was asthmatic, so he was also worried about some of the risk to himself as he was doing these intubations. Um, at that point, I would decide, you know, this this is the person that I really think should narrate this piece of, of, of this history of, of the pandemic. Do you think that the pandemic brought out the confessional in the American people? I know talking about the American people generally is a bit silly, but do you think that people became more comfortable with revealing some of their more intimate narratives of their tragedies, of their hopes and their fears in this pandemic, which none of us have lived through before? None of us, um, you know, really in, in modern living memory. For sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, ha having... Uh had the privilege of doing journalism uh, in a lot of different parts of the world. One thing that that um, always is remarkable to me about the American people is that by nature, I think uh, we're often confessional and, and sort of seek out, you know, some kind of shared storytelling experience. Uh, people's guards come down pretty quickly. Uh, I think that was definitely even more true during the pandemic. And part of that, frankly, was a function of loneliness. You know, many of the people that I was talking to over the phone were not interacting with other people over the course of the day. I mean, several of them were basically just watching their computer screens and, and maybe posting things on Facebook, um, but feeling relatively alone and isolated in the world, but by by the function of this virus and, and worrying that even being near the people that they loved would, would be potentially um, harmful to the people that they loved. So in some ways, I think um, 
for me as a journalist, that opened up a huge amount of time. Like people were, were eager to talk and, and almost were, were happy to have like a reason to have the hours pass. Um, and also I think that that kind of loneliness, I mean, anytime people are in a, a, a more vulnerable moment, um, I think it's an opportunity to build trust faster in, in, a, in a reporting relationship, um, in any relationship, because I wasn't calling these people to talk about the weather. I, I was calling to talk to them in many cases about you know, the fact that they were in the process of, of trying to save someone or in, in some cases in the process of, of getting sicker and eventually dying themselves. So these these were conversations that often very quickly you know, cut to the bone of some of the, the big emotional issues in, in, in the course of a human life. You learn what it was like, um, Eli, to be a priest. Uh, one of the more memorable conversations you had, and, and I'm not going to do justice to the book, so everyone needs to read this book. I think a lot of people would have already read it, but it's, it's one of the most important books, I think, written certainly during COVID. Um, one of the most memorable conversations for me was with a man called Tony Sizemore, who you talked to about the death of his wife, Birdie uh, Shelton. So it's not about him losing its life. It's about his wife losing his life. So it's, it's, it was a conversation about loneliness. What was it about Tony Sizemore that uh, you think makes your conversation with him so tragically memorable? You know, I think Tony, uh, his his partner, Birdie, got sick very early in the pandemic before really, you know, especially somebody like Tony, who's not he's not a scientist. He doesn't follow the news. He, he you know, plays music in a, in a band and sort of scratches out a living in, in rural Indiana. He 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 didn't know anything about COVID at that point. He'd seen something about cruise ships on the news uh, in one year out the other. And then suddenly the, the person he loved most in the world got sick and and. Like anybody, he figured, well, she's a little bit sick. She'll get better. It's probably a cold. Um, and, and then he watched her as she got worse and worse and worse and, and until it became clear that she probably was not ever going to get better. Um, and I, I think a lot of a lot of the what sticks with me about Tony is um, his his honesty about his own lack of preparedness to deal with the darkness of some of this. I mean, Tony, as he said to me, I don't know how to be a caretaker. I, I don't know what to do about this. And he would sit next to Brody in the hospital room as doctors were trying to figure out what was wrong with her. And and he he knew that the best thing for him to do as a partner and as, as a, a decent person was to sit there with her and hold her hand. But her agony was so hard for him to watch that he found himself in moments of weakness, just unable to bear witness and, and would walk out of the room and leave and, and just couldn't see it because of, of the horrors of what this virus was doing to her. And, and the mix of the tragic and the mundane you you bring out or you manifest uh, beautifully, uh, Eli, with respect to him. I think you write about how he was fiddling with a new battery for his phone when she died uh and 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 that's not a criticism of of him in any way it just this this virus was so profoundly unforgiving wasn't it no unbelievably unforgiving and in tony's case and and you know this became true for a lot of people um it 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 not only you know took people's lives but it but it robbed them of a chance to say goodbye you know eventually once they realized that that birdie had covid uh, the doctors told Tony he couldn't be there. He had to go home. Tony also was was you know told he needed to isolate because of course he'd been exposed. Um, and eventually the doctor said, "Well, the one chance that you might have to say goodbye is over FaceTime." You know, Tony 
like frankly half of, of Americans uh, doesn't have any savings, doesn't have any money, barely has a working cell phone and, and spent hours trying to upload these apps onto his phone so he could maybe look at his dying partner and say goodbye to her and couldn't figure out how to do it. Um, and, and his own like fury about that, uh, you know, and, and his own feelings of like regret and ineptitude, I think are, that's the part of this pandemic that we, we, like you said earlier, I think in many ways we are moving on, but some of these things, you know, they're lasting, right? Like the, the, the scars of something like this, um, you know, emotional, certainly also like economic, uh, the medical system, all these other ways, I think we're going to be recovering from this for, for a long time to come. Yeah. I want to talk about those, but you know, this idea of saying goodbye to someone is so chilling. You also had a conversation with Paul Swan on the death of his mother, Darlene Krawitz. Um, you can't say goodbye to someone, can you, Eli? I mean, the notion, it's not like going out, I'll see you later, I'll see you next week, I'll see you next month. I mean, the notion of saying goodbye to your wife or your mother or your son is unimaginable, isn't it? It's totally unimaginable. Until it happens and then you're forced to do it. Yeah, exactly. Well, and my, my guess is the idea of saying goodbye is sort of, um, it's more about wanting the people that you love not to be alone. You know, and, and uh, I think for, for Paul, who watched his mother, you know, that was a, an interesting, you know, and sort of haunting experience for me, frankly, because first I was talking to Paul's mother, Darlene, uh, a nurse in Syracuse, New York, because I thought I was going to be, you know, doing a piece about long COVID. You know, she, she had been sick for, for seven weeks. She was very in shape, had, had been a hiker her whole life. Uh, you know, was somebody who had gotten sick, started to get better, but then some of these symptoms were persisting. And so we were having conversations about what it was like to have, have long COVID and have it not going away. And, and over the days that we were on the phone, she would suddenly become short of breath, have coughing fits, say she needed to call me back. Um, and it became clear over the next week that she was in fact getting worse um, and, and, and deteriorating quickly. So she ended up back in the hospital um, they sent her home saying, you know, we, we don't, we're not really sure what's happening here. Uh, and, and Paul then came home to care for his, his mother. And this is a 25 year old who was used to relying on his mother. And suddenly his mother was experiencing such bouts of delirium that she would sort of wander around the house and look for her keys and walk out onto the porch naked and not have, you know, not have the wherewithal to know where she was. Uh, and, and eventually when she finally collapsed, Paul was the one trying to give her CPR in the living room uh, as, as the medics were coming. So, you know, I think uh, there's no such thing, obviously, when somebody that you care about is dying as, as, a, as a clean goodbye, as a, as a fulfilling goodbye. But I, I do think that, you know, all of us take some comfort in thinking that um, maybe, maybe the people we care about won't be alone in those moments. Uh, and I know for Paul, who is haunted by what happened with his mother and haunted by bearing witness to it, he at least feels grateful for the fact that that she wasn't alone when that was happening. I mean, and I think he takes some comfort in that. You mentioned long term COVID. She died from it. You've done a lot of writing on long term. You know, I began the show suggesting that the COVID story was ending. But unfortunately for many, like Caitlin Dennis, who you write about, COVID remains with us. How extensive, Eli, do you think long term COVID is? Is this perhaps a little bit of a media invention to keep it going, or is it real and really affecting a significant number of Americans? I mean, I think it's it's certainly real and affecting, uh, you know, some significant number of Americans, but the truth is, and this has been the, 
you know, the frustrating and at times scary thing about the entire pandemic is that nobody knows yet, right? It's like the, the, the research and the information is being gathered in real time. So, you know, still when it comes to long COVID, I know that one of the frustrations for people that are still having sort of irregular heartbeat issues, all these other symptoms that we keep hearing about with long COVID months down the road, they, they feel like the medical community doesn't understand how to support them, um, which is true. This is all this is all like a, a new frontier. I think it's a, a relatively small number, a small percentage of people who, who experience long-term COVID after effects. Uh, but certainly like the research at this point makes it pretty clear that that's, that percentage is not zero. There's, there, there are at this point, you know, thousands and likely tens of thousands of Americans who are dealing with some form of, of long-term COVID. Um, and honestly, for me, you know, I just had COVID. Uh, fortunately, I was, you know, I've been vaccinated. I've been boosted. Uh, my, I had a very mild, uh, mild course, uh, a, a sore throat and these other things, but it's enough in my head that the one thing I do think about is, okay, when I, when I go out to exercise now, is, is my heart functioning the same way? Is my, my breathing capacity the same as it always has been? Because after talking to somebody like Caitlin, uh, whose slide you just showed, she was a division one soccer player who you know was a, a investment banker who was used to going for six to eight mile runs on Lake Michigan every day, and suddenly was in a wheelchair. Uh, you know, a year after having this virus um, because of autoimmune complications. You know, I, I think um, it certainly is very real to her. Uh, Eli, you had many conversations about the vaccine. Uh, one with Stanley Plotkin, a legendary vaccinologist. Another with. Uh, county manager um, uh, of a, a, a nursing home on the unanticipated challenges of rolling out the vaccine. There are two narratives that seem to coexist on the vaccine. One, that it was a miracle that the American, no, not just the American, but the medical industrial complex worked and worked remarkably hard, miraculously hard to find, a co- uh, to find the vaccine. And the other is that the industry was slow and corrupt and self-interested. Which narrative is true, do you think? Both are true. You know, I mean, this this is, and frankly, this has been one of the disasters of the messaging around the entire pandemic, um, is that we, we, are, we are so bad, I think, sometimes as a society at embracing nuance and also uncertainty. Um, and, and so the messaging around the vaccine, um, around masking, around COVID became uh, polarized and, and, uh, and absolutist. Uh, in 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 really like varied directions. So you know, with the vaccines, I think that it, it is uh, unquestionable that that the the invention, particularly of of mRNA vaccines, which have have proven to be remarkably successful at preventing uh, severe disease um, and 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 death, um, while while not stopping the spread of the virus. Uh, but but. That technology, the fact that it was harnessed within a year um, and, and you know, brought to bear at this crucial moment, it, it is, you know, I was just reading a, a Lancet journal entry article that in the first year, those vaccines saved more than 20 million lives based on, on the, the death data that, that was studied in the pandemic. So um, I, I think that's remarkable uh, and, and you could maybe say miraculous. I also think the vaccines clearly were not a panacea. You know, viruses mutate and respiratory viruses are notoriously difficult to, to stop. What, what these vaccines do is 
they train your immune system to fight back so that that your your immune system has a two or three day faster reaction to fight back against that virus. But the virus is still capable of spreading. The virus has mutated. And we've seen that, that now, you know, relatively minor COVID has become endemic in many ways. Uh, so the problem, I think, is uh, the messaging around the vaccine. There was... Uh, there was a, a, a president for a time um, and also a part of the country that, that was suggesting the vaccines were likely u- useless, uh, potentially sort of like an overblown hoax. Yeah, I mean, one guy you talked to even suggested that uh, the cure is worse than the disease. Exactly. So I think you had that kind of messaging on one side. And, and what it meant was that people who were pushing for the vaccine felt like they had to marketed as like the magic elixir. And and once this thing exists, take it and everything will be over. Um, of course, that didn't prove to be true either. So, you know, I, I think, you know, the gift of storytelling, particularly for me, like the kind of long form, in-depth storytelling that I do is is I'm trying to move past a place of simplification toward a place of nuance. And, and that usually is where the truth is. If the truth was sort of a, a simple slogan, uh, you know, absolutist thing, then then life would be a lot easier. But that's that's not what it is. Yeah, you seem to be interested in finding both the best and the worst in people. You had a bestseller from 2018, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist, a book about how a white nationalist seemed to make see moral sense. Uh, and a lot of your interviews um, for this book are about hope, grief, decency, anxiety, and fear. I'm guessing, um, Eli, that the the moral narrative is as complicated and as nuanced as as any of the messages from from the pandemic. We behaved both in the worst and the best ways that we as a species have historically lived. Is that fair? Yeah, it's absolutely fair and and frankly, very perceptive. I mean, I I think one of the things that makes me love... uh, the work that I get to do is that people are endlessly complicated and, and um, trying to figure out what motivates them, what makes them think the things that they do uh, is, is really fascinating. And, and it's, it, you know, the even greater gift in doing that is that, you know, people for the most part want to be liked and, and they're willing to trust and they're, and, you know, I'm every single person that I called and started talking to in this book or went to visit and started reporting on in this book was I showed up in their li- life as a total stranger. Right. And, and I was asking them to, to tell me things, uh, you know, over time that, that they would probably only tell a very close friend and, and they would only tell that close friend with the expectation that that person would tell nobody. Um, I'm yeah, asking. These were, I mean, these conversations these you're having with these people are incredibly personal. Yeah, incredibly personal. And, and so, you know, first of all, that's a huge privilege uh, to, to be allowed into that spot in people's lives. I think it's also a testament to the fact that, you know, people want to be seen. Uh, all of us want to feel like the experiences of our, our lives matter in some way and, and are part of like a shared experience and people are paying attention to them. Um, but then also it's incumbent on me once I once I occupy that place in somebody's life to do justice to their experience. And, and that that doesn't mean writing it in a way that makes them happy or uh, making it look better than it is. It means capturing the truth of their experience so that other people can see it. Um, and, and so I guess I carry that part over always into the writing and editing process to make sure I'm getting it right. There was a piece this morning. I, I, I haven't got the slide of it. I think it may have been in the post about the no, I'm, or in the Times about the number of scams, financial scams, particularly under COVID. 
and how there are tens of thousands of FBI agents um, now and police people investigating these scams. A lot of liars, in other words. Did you have some very dishonest voices from the pandemic? Did Were you exposed to people who simply didn't tell the truth about themselves or their experience? Yes, uh, certainly I was. You know, and and um, often, uh, I guess, fortunately, I, I would learn that was the case and then that wasn't going to be somebody that I would write about. But I, I was... You know, amazed, particularly, um, you know, GoFundMe, uh, a site where, where people start their own fundraising campaigns, is is almost like, a, um, you know, it can be a little bit of a tragedy contest. People people writing writing about their own hardships, uh, oftentimes exaggerating them or just, just wholesale making them up uh, in, in the hopes of raising money. Um, and, and there were definitely people that I talked to in the book that were doing exactly that. I, I, I also talked to people who were um, selling selling masks for insane uh, insane prices and, and taking advantage of, of the pandemic market that way. Um, you know, I, I think we saw that across the entire range of the economy. You know, at at, at one point, uh, you know, I, I I also am interviewing a billionaire who, as the markets rose over the course of the pandemic, was had made nine hundred and eighty. Yeah, I, that piece I read it back in January of this year on. Um on uh, Leon Cooperman it already had a big impact on me, a very, very powerful piece. Uh, thanks for reading it. Yeah, I mean, it, so I think that there's, you know, there were people who profited off the pandemic. Uh, Although to it, be fair to him, I mean, what are financial people supposed to do? If you've got a lot of money in the market, if you left your money in the market, you made money. I mean, I'm not sure if it's fair exactly. to morally criticize them. No, I, I, I agree with you completely. And in fact, the point of that piece is, is sort of Leon his own questioning of, of, you know, what's right and what his place in the American economy is. And, and Leon in particular is he's a billionaire, but he's entirely self-made grew up with, with very little money, uh, worked really hard and gives a lot of money away and, and suddenly finds himself being cast as like the villain in, in a, a version of the American story. And it doesn't make any sense to him. And frankly, it doesn't entirely make sense to, to me. So that was a piece of him trying to figure out what, what had happened and what had changed to, to put him in that position. Um, but, you know, I, I think there were also people uh, who, who in the pandemic, like went the opposite way where there's one of the, one of the pieces in the book that um, sticks with me is, is a guy named Burnell Cotlin in New Orleans who ran a little, a little grocery market in the ninth. Yeah, grade. that's a very powerful story. Yeah, he just he started. He noticed that people were basically they didn't they'd all been laid off from the hotels. Uh, they were getting sick. Their lives were being upended. They didn't they didn't have money for food, uh, and and so he started this ledger, basically giving food away, um, which was this remarkable uh, gesture for somebody who was barely paying the rent on the store himself, um, and then kind of doubling up on that goodness. Once, once people learned about what Brunel was doing, they started donating money to him in, in first the tens and then the hundreds of thousands um, so that he could basically build a food kitchen to, to give food away throughout the course of the pandemic. So you know, I think we, we did see um, across all political and geographic lines, people's instinct to, to help each other. I mean, that, that was there, I think, almost universally um, on a human level in the pandemic. What about the generational thing? Um... Uh, Eli, I've got two children, one of who graduated from high school, the other from college. This is the COVID generation. I'm not sure it had the same impact on my generation. You have conversations with parents, also with uh, kids about 
losing uh, parents and, and what the COVID has done to them. Do you think that ultimately, when the smoke clears in ten or twenty uh, in ten or twenty years, the kids, the adolescents, the teenagers who went through COVID are going to be remembered as the COVID generation? Are they going to ever forget this? Are they going to be defined by COVID throughout their lives? I hope they won't be defined by it, but I, I certainly think that that the legacy of, of this pandemic will stick with them and define some of their habits going forward. I mean, I, I see it. We have a, a fifth grader, a third grader, and a kindergartner, um, and just the way that their education, not for a small amount of time, for, for two years, uh, was, was upended has certainly changed many of their habits, you know, wh whether it's... Um, gravitating more towards a computer, gravitating more towards screens, uh, you know, being much more comfortable chatting through it through an online box than having a conversation in person or on the phone. At first, when the schools that our kids uh, go to, the public schools here in Portland, when they when they got rid of their mask mandate, uh, not our kids, but other kids at the school were not comfortable to take their masks off because they, they were so used to wearing these things. So, you know, I, I think it's, um, and although, you know, your kids, uh, hopefully their their experience um, wasn't altered in ways that, that will define them. I mean, I'd be, were they were they in, in college, in school? Did Were they suddenly doing it remotely? Because I, I would guess some of those things, obviously, they must have been impacted in some ways. What, what, right, what I mean, the impact on schools is dramatic. You, one of the people you talk to, another of the people is Jeff uh, Gregorich, school superintendent on the challenges of, of reopening schools. Schools, for better or worse, became political footballs. They became the things which left and right fought each other over. I'm not sure if either side particularly was concerned with schools, particularly people like uh, Gregorich, who was caught in the middle. Yeah, I mean, that's and that's the, that's the shame of the way that this was all politicized, because, you know, the truth is... Uh, on both sides, science sometimes became secondary, right? Like it was, uh, you know, like Jeff Gregorich, his school had had outdoor spaces that that um, people in the community still did not want them to use, even when the science was pretty clear that people being outside uh, was 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 not going to be a major risk. Um, and then there there were other people who thought anybody who wore a mask uh, was was making some sort of uh, leftist political stand um, and, and they wouldn't stand for it. So, you know, I think um, that's one way. And with all of these things in the pandemic, I guess my, you know, when we think about like the lasting legacy of it, um, this is the way things work uh, in America and probably most places. Like, like people who were the most vulnerable before the pandemic hit suffered the worst from it, right? So, so students who were already behind, students who didn't have computers at home, students who had to had to take care of younger siblings at home who who were suddenly back at home too, um, they they were 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 much more disadvantaged by what happened in the pandemic. So, you know, our, our kids, uh, I think they will they will bounce back and recover because they're they're fortunate. Like they have they had the technology, they had the supplementary education, they had sort of a trampoline under their feet. Um, I spent I spent time in in the in the valley in California shortly after the pandemic with a, a, a middle school with a high school vice principal whose job it was to track down all of the students at this high school who had gone missing 340 kids in a high school of 1600 who'd gone who'd essentially disappeared from school during the pandemic because they didn't have connectivity uh, they, they weren't engaged in 
enough to be in online classes, um, you know, those kids, uh, they, they, they won't catch up, you know, they, they, they won't recover in the same ways. Uh, and, and I think that's true with the economy too. You know, the, 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 the workers who were most vulnerable are the ones who are going to have the hardest time recovering in the workforce. Yeah. All the, all the tragedy of our socioeconomic inequalities were compounded with COVID. It didn't change anything. You have a number of interviews with people who just experienced terrible punishment through no fault of their own. One woman who was evicted from their home. And I mentioned that Cooperman piece that you wrote in January of this year. You also wrote a piece um, in March of this year about a very different kind of family, Dave Ramsey Jr.'s family who essentially went bankrupt. You see two Americas emerge. I mean, there was always two Americas, of course, before COVID. But the two Americas now is much more vivid, uh, yes. isn't it, Eli? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and that's, you know, I I have the the fortune in my job of, of observing that firsthand often. I'm not so, sure it's good fortune or bad. Yeah, exactly. Someone's got to do it, Eli. I'm I like, we're, we're really lucky that we got you. You're a treasure. Well, that's kind of you to say. Maybe it's good fortune when I'm with the billionaire in Boca, but but uh, less so less so documenting uh, what I often am. But you know, yeah, I, think I mean, also- this story, particularly of Dave Ramsey Jr. I mean, these are such terribly sad stories. They're heartbreaking, aren't they? Yeah, it's and it's and it's and what's heartbreaking about it is is uh, is just sort of having done this for long enough now to to sort of see. Um, see the outcome for, for me it's it's often like kids right so like dave has uh has has a daughter in his house who's who's about the same age as my middle daughter uh you know a third grader and and knowing like how uh, impossible the circumstances of her life are they don't have a car they can't get her to school on time uh you know she she's living in like abject poverty she's She's drinking and eating all of these things that are not good for her because they're the cheap things that they're able to, to buy with food stamps. Um, and, and unfortunately, like I, I leave there feeling um, not hopelessness is too strong, but just just a sense of, of deep sadness for, for the odds of how of how her life is going to turn out. And, and I hope it doesn't end up that way. Um, but I, I certainly have gone back and looked at what's happened in, in some of the kids that I was writing about when I was writing about food stamps seven, eight, nine years ago. And, and often, uh, I'd say almost always, like my, my fears are, are confirmed. You know, this uh, intergenerational poverty is really hard to escape. And these like accumulating disadvantages um, are, are, are just a, a heavy blanket to, to put on somebody's, on somebody's life. And also the data in America now shows not only that, um, you know, we're, we're bifurcating in terms of, of extreme wealth and, and inequality, but also economic mobility, the, the, the basically what, what measures somebody's ability to rise from a lower economic class to a higher economic class has gotten much smaller over the last 30 years as well. So I, I think that's that's really troubling because one of the stories we tell ourselves as Americans is that, you know, there are elements in which this this country can be a meritocracy and you can come from nothing and be something and and those those stories are becoming less and less frequent and and less and less true yeah i think it if anything COVID also exaggerated the ontological divide in america the fact that americans look at the world and see two quite different realities you had conversations with people on the COVID. uh COVID theories of conspiracy, as as we said, some people believe that the 
cure was worse than the disease. I wonder, we began, and perhaps we might end here, Eli, about the story being finished, but perhaps it isn't. I know that Ron DeSantis is likely to run for president, and he has a reasonably good chance of winning. He's hung his hat on a certain view of COVID and a certain way of getting Florida through the pandemic. If Newsom was to run again, and if, if Biden doesn't run, it's conceivable that you could have a presidential election in 2024 between Newsom and DeSantis that would, in many ways, be fought on the history of COVID, California versus Florida. How likely do you think that is and, and what would happen? Reasonably likely. you know, And, and I think even, even if that isn't uh, ultimately what we're looking at in the general election, the, the main political figures of our moment, uh, Trump among them, have, have I think, uh, defined themselves in large ways, like in reaction to this to this virus and to the pandemic. Uh, and, and, you know, by doing so, have, have wedged the country further. Uh, so, so in terms of what will happen, I, I think, unfortunately, what we will continue to see is, uh, is like rising discord and, and divisiveness um, and, and less and less of like a, a chance at, um, actual shared compromise or connection and and what's so tragic about that is like my I, i'm i'm going around the country i'm interviewing all kinds of different people whose experiences are so different from my own and and once i get past the the sort of label or idea that they have of of who i am or what i think uh, which oftentimes is pretty strong if i'm going to a, a you know a more conservative part of the country and i'm arriving as a writer from the washington post it takes it takes about 10 minutes tops to get past that, right? All of these, all of these things that 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 divide us. Once once you meet somebody, once you know them, once you once you trust them a little bit, uh, it all goes away. But it, it's it's so easy over over Facebook, all of these other all of these other mechanisms. I think of 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 accentuating our divides. Um, to, to increasingly for all of us, we cultivate our own news feeds. We, we pay attention to ideas that often mostly confirm what we already think. We, we are more likely to spend time with people who also confirm the things that we already think. So we exist more and more in these siloed political bubbles. And if you have DeSantis and Newsom representing basically those, those bipolar bubbles, uh, I think of course, that only is going to drive people deeper into their to their own stance, their own idea of certainty of, of how they see the world, um, which is really too bad. Certainly is. I, I Let's end with a dumb question. I can't resist, Eli. You also wrote a, a book, one of your earlier books, 10 Letters, The American People in the Obama Years. Is there one story from all this of the many, many stories that you heard that made it into the book or didn't make it into the book or made it in? to one of your Washington Post pieces that somehow captures everything? Is there just one story that stands out for you? Yeah, it's, 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 I think it's hard for, for any one story. I know it's hard. It's like saying, which of your children do you prefer? It's a exactly. But there's, I think a lot about uh, a guy named Anthony who, who was an ambulance driver in New York city, um, who, who. Here he married... is, Anthony Almayera. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, he, he narrated his experience. It, it, like in many ways, I think his pandemic was like the um, distillation of, of so much dysfunction and injustice already embedded into America. Ambulance drivers in New York City, 
make almost no, you know, they, they make less than $40,000 a year in many instances. Um, they're way understaffed. Uh, they're, they're undertrained. They struggle to recruit because of all those things. Mm. Um, and, and during the pandemic, they were responding pr- prior to the pandemic, the highest 911 911, you know, call volume in, in New York City ever was on September 11th when the towers went down. Uh, during the during the pandemic, during that first March wave, the the 911 call volume in New York City eclipsed that record 17 days in a row. So we're talking about um, an insane volume of of calls that Anthony was in charge of 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 responding to, and and also. In, in traveling around the entire city, he saw the places he was going to again and again. He wasn't going to nice places in the Upper West Side where people, for the most part, had gotten out or weren't having to ride the subway or, or weren't having to go to work. He was going to like majority immigrant neighborhoods where people didn't have a choice but to go to work, where they were more likely to encounter the virus. Um, and he was going to these places and and feeling like he was saving nobody. I mean, he told the story of, of one day where He'd gone to 12 calls um, and and watched 12 people die and felt like he did not have the tools, uh, the resources, anything to fight this virus. Um, you know, and, and I think his righteous indignation uh, about the situation he'd been put in um, and also his heartbreak about what he was witnessing every day uh, will will always stick with me. Well, that's an important, it's, it's, it's more than important, it's essential. Um... Anthony, congrats, uh, Eli. Sorry, congratulations. I was going to call you Anthony because of your hero. Uh, you're also a hero. I think it's essential that you get these stories out. Congratulations. The book is out in paperback. It's a central reading. It's already won a number of awards. I'm sure it will win more this year. Oh, any uh, any other suggested reading, Eli? I don't know if you have time, given how busy you are with all these different stories. No, I I I, uh, I find I, I sort of need to keep up with my reading uh, in order in order to write. You know, it's it's um, yeah. I, I always try to make time for it. This year, I've been reading for whatever reason a lot of Ann Patchett, who I'd I'd read uh, read certainly some of before, but um, she came out with a collection this year. I think it's called These Precious Days. It's more of her nonfiction writing, which is uh, magnificent. She's she's she does everything very very well. Um, Trying to think what else I've read recently. I just finished reading Pachinko, which is uh, has been out for a long time. I think now actually there's a TV series about it, which which people like, but I haven't watched. But the book is uh, masterful. Just just um, such great character building and plot building. One of those books that's that's you know 520 pages, and I was grateful for every one of them. So those those are a few recent things I've I've been enjoying. <laughs> 